Section 1 of The Pastoral Loves of Daphnis and Chloe by Longus Translated by George Moore This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anamika Proemial Whilst hunting in the island of Lesbos, I saw in a grave consecrated to the nymphs the most beautiful thing I had ever seen in my life, a painted carving figuring a human love story in all its joys and tribulations. The grove itself was beautiful. Flowers were not lacking, nor comely trees, and a rill issuing from the rocks brought a sweet refreshment to the trees and flowers. But the painted carving was more pleasing, and it was of such voluptuous subject and so marvelously wrought that many, even strangers, journeyed thither to supplicate the nymphs and to admire the sculpture. Women in labor were seen in it, women adjusting the swaddles of their babes, babes cast out in wild places for shepherds to bring home or for beasts to suckle, and there were young lovers united in love, and pirates on the sea, and bands that roamed the country, and many other things all telling of love. These I saw with much pleasure, and all seeming to me beautiful, I was taken with the desire to set the story down in writing, and finding one who could interpret the picture to me, and having heard all, I composed four books, votive offerings to Eros, to the nymphs and to Pan, and to all men, a lovely possession that will help to cure the sick, to comfort the sorrowful, and recall memories of love to those whose time for love is over, and instruct those who have not yet loved. For from Eros there has been no escape in the past, and there never will be any, as long as there be beauty in this world for the eye to see. And may the God grant me such good sense as will enable me to write with wisdom of the passions of others. The Pastoral Loves of Daphnis and Chloe Book the First The sea flows round Mytilene, a fair city of Lesbos, and channels filled by the sea and adorned by bridges of polished white stone divide it so frequently that the beholder, viewing it from a distance, would perceive a group of small islands rather than a city. About eight or nine leagues from this city, a rich man had an estate, the finest in the island of Lesbos, containing game coverts, hillsides clothed with vines, wheat-growing fields, pasturage for cattle, and along the shore the sea washed long reaches of fine sand. On this estate, a goat herd named Lamun noticed, whilst watching his flock, that one of his she-goats would disappear suddenly, and seeking for some reason why she should abandon her kid, he kept his eye upon her, till one hot noon he saw her enter a dense thicket, fenced with briars and woven ivy. He pushed his way through these, and on a bed of fine grass, soft as down, a child lay beneath the goat's udder, pressing it with his greedy hands as if it were a mother's breast. To imagine Lamun's surprise is easy. He approached and found that the child was a boy, beautiful, well-shapen, and in rich clothes that did not seem in keeping with the foundling. He was wrapped in a purple mantle, fastened with a golden brooch, and beside him was a small, ivory-handled knife. 
The goat herd's first thought was to take away these tokens of the child's noble birth, leaving him to his fate. But his second thought awakened a feeling of shame in him, that he should be less human than the she-goat. So when night came, he gathered up the tokens and the child, and, followed by the she-goat, brought them to his wife, Mirtale, who, fairly astonished, asked if in these last days she-goats gave birth to little boys. Laman told his story, how on finding the she-goat suckling the child, he had been tempted to leave him to his fate, but was overtaken with shame at the thought of such cruelty. And she being of the same mind as himself, they were soon agreed that they should rear the boy. They packed away all that belonged to him, saying everywhere that he was their own, and that he might be thought to be of shepherd kin, they called him Daphnis. And after this event, when two years had gone by, Laman's luck befell another shepherd of the neighborhood named Dryas. Whither he led his flocks was a cave known as the Cave of the Nymphs, a rock of great bulk, and within it the nymphs were carven in the stone with unsandaled feet, their arms naked to the shoulders, their hair scattered around their throats, girdled above the hips, each with face delighted yet sober, as if they had come together to keep step in some mystic dance. From a fissure in the rock a spring of water issued, spread into a pool or basin in the hollowest part of the cave, and flowing out kept fresh the swards and lawns of the grove, and passed on through the green meadow beyond. And hung upon the rock all round were milking pails, flutes, and reed pipes, votive offerings of shepherds long passed away. Into this cave one of his ewes wandered so often that more than once he had looked upon her as lost, and his mind, being to impose the rule of the herd upon her, to compel her to graze with the others, he cut a supple branch of osier, and having woven it into a noose, he entered the cave, thinking to lay hold of her amid the rocks. But he was no sooner within the cave than the strange sight met his eyes of the ewe surrendering her milk in human wise to a little child. The pretty, neat mouth of the child, having drunk all that one tit could give, passed on to the next, and the child having drunken enough, the ewe turned her head to lick the babe's face. This time it was a girl, and with her, as with the boy, were laid tokens whereby her kin might be proven, a snood of woven gold, gilt shoes, and socks embroidered with gold. And Dryas, deeming the discovery to be a gift from the gods, and learning pity and love from the sheep, took the child in his arms, put the tokens in his wallet, and prayed to the nymphs that he might happily rear their poor little suppliant. Now when the time came for him to fold his flock, returning to his shealing he told his wife what he had seen, showed her what he had found, saying that she would do nothing but what was right in accepting this child for her daughter, to rear as if it was her own, without telling anybody how they had come by her. Nape was the name of the shepherdess, and Nape from that moment was the mother of the little girl, and loved her so tenderly that she was often jealous of the ewe that was always by to feed her with her tit. And to make believe that the child was their very own, she too was given a shepherd's name, and was called Chloe. Before many years had gone by, these children were tall, and their beauty seemed out of keeping with the life of clowns. And it was when one was fifteen, and the other two years younger, 
that Laman and Dryas dreamed in one night the same dream, that the nymphs, those of the cave and the springhead, where Dryas had discovered the little girl, consecrated Daphnis and Chloe to the service of a very proud and lovely boy, who had wings on his shoulders and carried a bow and little arrows, and that he, having touched both of them with the same arrow, ordained that one should lead the goats and the other the sheep. The vision or dream foretelling the lot of their foster children caused the good shepherds some grief. They would have wished a different fate for them than to be shepherds and goat herds. For till then, their belief was that the marks found on the clothing promised a better fortune, and Daphnis and Chloe were reared more gently than befalls the children of shepherds. Some reading and writing they had, and such notions of truth and honor as prevail among hills and valleys. All the same, their parents inclined to do the will of the gods whose providence had saved these children, and each having communicated his dream to the other and sacrificed at the cavern to the winged boy, his name was unknown to them, they sent the twain to the fields, instructed in all knowledge needful for shepherds, how the flock should feed before midday and after the heat of the day had gone, at what hour they should be watered, at what hour led to the fold, when the crook should be used, and when the voice was enough. The children accepted the trust with as much joy as if they had been given some great estate. They loved their she-goats and their ewes more than is common among shepherds, for she felt that she owed her life to a ewe, and he remembered that a she-goat had suckled him. Now it was about the beginning of the springtime, when all the flowers were blowing in the woods and meadows and on the hills, Already had begun the murmuring of bees in the fields, and the bleeding of newborn lambs. The flocks gambled on the hillsides. The hawk moths buzzed, darted, dropped their long tongues into the depths of the flowers, and the woods resounded with the song of birds. All that was alive saluted the incoming season, and Daphnis and Chloe, in the ardor of youth, imitated all they heard and saw. For hearing the birds sing, they sang. Seeing the lambs skip, they skipped, and then, like the bees, they sought flowers, passing some into their bosoms, weaving some into reeds for the nymphs. And side by side, doing their work together, they led their different flocks from pasture to pasture, Daphnis running ahead to bring back the ewes that had wandered from the flock, Chloe often restraining the she-goats from high, steep crags. Sometimes one kept watch over the two flocks, whilst the other engaged in some prank, the pranks of shepherds and of children. Scampering forth in the morning, she would gather some rushes to make a cage for a grasshopper, and so wholly bent was she on the weaving that her flock was forgotten. At a little distance, Daphnis cut reeds, and after cleaning away the joints and joining the reeds together with soft wax, he practiced playing the double flute all day till nightfall. At midday, they shared their milk or wine. The food they had brought from home was divided between them. And so it may be said that it was easier to see the ewes dispersed, each straying whither she listed, than Daphnis and Chloe apart. But whilst they played, Eros wrought trouble for them. A wolf, having whelped in the neighborhood, harried the flocks for food for her cubs, and the folk came by night to dig pits six feet deep and twenty wide. The earth flung out of these was scattered far and wide, and the pits were hidden with long, thin rods, so light that a hare could not have passed over them 
without falling through. Earth and leaves were scattered on the top so that the place might seem even and undisturbed. Many such pits were digged in the hills and in the plain, but the wolf, suspecting a trap, always turned aside. Goats and ewes, however, met their death in these pits, and Daphnis nearly met his in one of them, when two he-goats, mad with jealousy, charged with such force that in the budding a horn of one was broken, and the unhorned goat, overcome with pain, fled bleeding from the combat, followed by his rival, who would leave him no peace. For the broken horn vexed Daphnis, and angered by the persistence of the victor, he caught up his crook and followed after. And so eager was the goat to escape from blows and Daphnis to give them, that neither took heed whither he was running. So both fell into the trap, the goat first, Daphnis on the top of him, astride and clutching. Thereby his fall was broken, and at the bottom of the pit he waited in tears for someone to come and draw him out of it. Chloe, witness of his misadventure from afar, ran to the brink, and seeing that he was still alive, called a neat herd to help her. The neat herd came bustling, seeking about him for a rope, but rope there was none to find, till Chloe caught sight of one that the diggers of the pit had lost among the bushes, ran to it, and gave it to the neat herd, who threw an end of it to Daphnis, and holding the other end, with Chloe's help, he drew Daphnis to the edge of the pit, and they helping, the boy clutching all he could lay hands on, earth and stones, was released finally from the trap. The neat herd then went down into the pit, and the goat was pulled out, but both his horns were broken, the vanquished being soon avenged. And the neat herd took him away in payment for his help, leaving the twain considering the story they would tell when they returned home. If he were missed, they would say the wolf had gotten him. Then returning to their flocks, and finding them grazing peacefully and in good order, they repaired to an oak tree and looked to see what part of his body Daphnis had wounded in his fall. In no part of his body was there blood, nor bruises. Mud, however, was everywhere, in his hair and upon him, and they took counsel, agreeing that only by washing could the mischance be concealed from Lamon and Myrtale. Wherefore, going with Chloe to the cave of the nymphs, he gave her his scrip and his jacket and his shirt to hold, whilst he washed his hair, black as ebony, thick locks falling about his neck, burnt brown by the sun, almost to the tint of the shadow his hair would cast. Chloe watched him, surprised to find him beautiful, and having never thought him beautiful before, she imagined that it was the water in the cave that had conferred beauty upon him. She washed his back and shoulders, and in washing his skin, it seemed so fine and soft that more than once, without his perceiving it, she touched herself, for she was in doubt which of the two bodies was the finer. As it was then late, already the sun was low, they called their beasties to follow, and from that time Chloe had no other thought in her mind but to see Daphnis bathing. When they returned to the fields next day, whilst Daphnis sat under the oak, as was his custom, playing his flute as the she-goats lay about him, seeming to take pleasure in the pretty music, Chloe sat by him, watching her ewes grazing, but more often her eyes were turned from them to Daphnis, and still finding him beautiful, and thinking that his beauty might be derived from the music itself, she took the flute from him and played it, so that she might be as beautiful as he, 
Then she wished that he would bathe once more, and whilst he bathed, she saw him naked and was unable to resist touching him. And when they returned in the evening homeward, she thought of Daphnis naked, and this thought was the beginning of her love. Very soon she had no thought and no remembrance of anything except Daphnis, and never spoke of anything but him. What she felt she could not find words to tell, being but a simple girl reared in the fields, and never having heard in her life even the word love. All the same, her soul was oppressed, and very often her eyes filled with tears. Days passed without her taking any food, and nights without her finding sleep. She laughed, and then tears fell. She slept, and a moment after was awake and sitting up in bed. She grew pale, and then her face was aflame. The heifer stung by the fly was never madder than she. She would fall at times into a kind of reverie, and all alone discoursed with herself in this fashion. I am sick, and I do not know what my sickness is. I suffer, and there is no wound. I mourn, yet no sheep is dead. I burn even in the deepest shade. Many briars have scratched me, but I did not weep, nor have I cried when stung by bees. Wherefore it must be that this sickness that fills my heart is greater than all that has gone before. True it is that Daphnis is beautiful, but he is not the only one. His cheeks are red, but flowers are too. He sings, but so do the birds. And yet, when I see the flowers and hear the birds, they do not leave any thought behind. Ah, that I were his flute, that he might take me in his lips. Ah, that I were a little kid, that he might take me in his arms. Oh, wicked fountain that has made him so beautiful, why canst thou not make me beautiful too? Oh, nymphs, you will not let me die, I that was born and lived among you. Who after me will weave you garlands and nosegays? And who will have care for my poor lambs? And my pretty Sikala, that I had such trouble to catch? How purposeless will thy song be in the hot noontide? Thy voice can no longer bring sweet sleep to me under the branches. Daphnis has robbed me of sleep. So did the lassie speak, as she sought in herself for what had befallen her, consumed by a fire yet unable to put a name upon it. But Dorkin, a neat herd, a young youth, on whose chin hair had just begun to curl, smitten with Chloe's beauty on the day he had helped her to pull Daphnis out of the pit, was now more than ever enamored of her, his love having increased day by day, blinding him so completely that he was distracted by no fear of coming upon a rival in Daphnis. As a child he looked upon him. All his mind was given to how he might get her, whether by presence, trickery, or peradventure by force, mattered not so long as he got her, and being learned in the ways of love, his first present was of a choice flute to Daphnis, the pipes being joined together by brass instead of wax, and to the lassie he gave a spotted fawn-skin wherewith to cover her shoulders. And these seeming to him enough to make sure of his friendship with both of them, he paid no further attention to Daphnis, but every day brought something new to Chloe. Sometimes he brought a rich cheese, sometimes ripe fruit, sometimes garlands of flowers, or mayhap birds that he had robbed from their nests. Once he gave her a goblet gilded at the brim, and another time a calf that he had brought from the mountain. And she, simple and unsuspicious, 
ignorant that all these gifts were but love-bait, accepted them willingly and showed much pleasure. But her pleasure was less to receive from him than to give to Daphnis. And one day Daphnis, for it could not be else that he too should know the pains of love, picked a quarrel with Dorkin. The twain contested their beauty before Chloe, the judge, and a kiss from her was the prize to be awarded to the victor. Whereupon Dorkin, the first to speak, said, I am taller than he. My charge is beeves and his but goats, and as beeves are above goats, so is the neat herd above the goat herd. I am white as milk, fair as a sheaf from the harvest field, sweet-smelling as a leaf in springtime. Moreover, I was suckled by my mother and not by a beast. He is little, puny, and beardless as a woman. Black of skin he is, rank as his own he-goats. A goat-herd, a poor white, too needy to keep a dog, said to have been suckled by a she-goat. By my faith, he is as he should be, nourished by a she-goat and the look of a kid upon him. So spoke Dorkin, and Daphnis answered him. Yes, I was suckled by a she-goat, and so was Jupiter. My charge is she-goats, and my flock would show well beside his cows. I am a goat-herd, but with no more taint of the buck upon me than Pan, who, nonetheless, is more buck than human. I ask no more of life than milk and cheese and hard bread and thin wine, meat and drink of shepherds like ourselves. But since I shared these with Chloe, I have no thought for what the rich eat. I am without beard. So is Bacchus. I am black. So also is the hyacinth. Bacchus is preferable to satyrs, and the hyacinth to a lily. That fellow is red as a fox, white as a town girl, and will be presently hairy as a buck. If thou kiss me, Chloe, thou wilt kiss my mouth. If thy kiss be given to him, thou wilt kiss the hair that reaches to his lips. And it behooves thee to remember that a ewe gave thee her milk, yet thou art beautiful. On this word, Chloe did not allow him to finish his speech, so great was her pleasure in hearing herself praised by him. And having desired a kiss a long while, she sprang to her feet, and without more ado, awarded him the prize, an innocent kiss, without art, but ardent enough to inflame hearts in youthful years. Dorkin, seeing himself outdone, fled into the woods to hide his shame and chagrin from all, and to seek other means whereby he might satisfy his love. And Daphnis was hardly more happy than he, for Chloe's kiss had stung him to the quick. One moment he was sad, and then he fell to sighing. He shuddered, and his heart beat quickly. A look from Chloe paled his face, and then a blush transfused it. His eyes were open. He admired her fair hair, the sweetness of her eyes, and the freshness of her skin, whiter than the creamy milk of her ewes. He did not eat, only tasted his food, and with drink he only wetted his lips. He was pensive and dumb, whereas before he chattered like a cicala, and he who had jumped and gambled with his goats sat apart still as an image, his flock out of sight, his flute forgotten, his head sunk like a flower on its stalk. He withered and dried like grass in the summertime, and he sat in joyless silence, never speaking except when he spoke to her or of her. Finding himself alone on occasions, he walked chatting to himself. Goddesses, what mischief has Chloe's kiss worked within me?
Her lips are tenderer than roses, her mouth sweeter than a honeycomb, and her kiss bitterer than a bee's sting. I have often kissed my kids, and often kissed her newborn lambs, and the little calf that Dorkin gave her, but her kiss was a different kiss. My breath comes in pantings, my heart flutters, my soul languishes, and still I desire to kiss again. O oh, dearly paid-for victory, O oh, strange, nameless victory, poisonous! But did she gather poison before she kissed me? How is it then that she is not dead? The swallows cry about me, and my flute is silent. How the kids skip, but I am sitting warily. The fields are in flowery prime, and I tie no posy nor garland. The violets and hyacinths bloom, Daphnis pines and fades, for the thought is upon him that Dorkin may have come to seem to her more beautiful than he. Thus sorrowed the gentle Daphnis, and he spoke these words like one who knew the pangs of love for the first time. But the swain Dorkin, the neatherd, being still determined to get Chloe, chose a moment when Dryas was planting a tree to grow a vine upon in his garden. He knew him in old time when Dryas was a shepherd. He came laden with fine cheeses, which he begged Dryas to accept as a present, speaking the while of their ancient fellowship, and so leading up to the object of his visit, which was to ask Dryas to give him Chloe in marriage, blurting out with many words that he wished to make her his wife, promising handsome presents, which, being a neat herd, he could afford. He would like to give, he said, two draught oxen, four hives of bees, fifty trees of his apple orchard, an ox hide to make shoes of, and every year a calf just weaned. And so touched was Dryas by Dorkin's friendliness, and tempted by his promises, that he nearly agreed to the marriage. But he bethought him a moment afterwards that the girl was nobly born, and should not fall to the lot of a neat herd, and fearing her story might come to be known, and her parents learned that she had been bartered for a few gifts, and that this would bring great disgrace and misfortune upon him, he gave a civil refusal to all Dorkin's offers, and showed him through the gate. And Dorkin, seeing his hopes dashed for the second time, and remembering that he had lost many excellent, rich cheeses, fell to thinking how, as soon as they were alone together, he would lay his hand upon Chloe. And calling to mind that one day it was Chloe and another day Daphnis that led the flocks to water, he cast about in his mind for a trick that he might play upon them, a trick worthy of a sharp-witted neatherd. He took the skin of a huge wolf, which, whilst prowling about the cows, had been tossed by the bull and flung it over his back, hiding his arms and hands in the skin of the forelegs. The tail and the skin of the hind legs covered his thighs, and he wore the head of the beast as a warrior his helmet. And having transformed himself into a wolf as well he could, he crawled to the springhead where the she-goats and ewes came to drink at evening. The deep valley through which the water flowed suited his purposes well, for all about were briars and brambles, thistles and juniper bushes, the very sort of covert in which a wolf would choose to lie in wait. There Dorkin lay hidden, waiting for the hour when the animals came to drink, in good hope that in the form of a wolf he would frighten Chloe, and seizing her body, take his pleasure of it. Nor had he long to wait. She came leading the two flocks, having left Daphnis cutting some tender branches to feed his goats come from the grass. 
The dogs that helped her to keep the flocks in good order followed, and as they hunted, sniffing in every bush, they came upon the trail of Dorkin and presently heard him crawling among the briars, ready to seize on the girl. A moment after they were barking and rushing upon him, as upon a wolf, biting the wolfskin and tearing it with their teeth. Frightened, but afraid to move, he crouched in the thicket, keeping silence through shame and striving to keep the wolfskin between him and them. But Chloe, terrified as she caught sight of the wolf, cried aloud to Daphnis for help. And when the dogs, having torn from Dorkin the wolfskin, began to bite him with good will, he too began to cry aloud and to pray Chloe and Daphnis, who had now come running, to help him. They soon called off and quieted the dogs, and the unhappy Dorkin was dragged out and led to the wellhead, where his bitten thighs and shoulders were bathed and dressed with the chewed bark of an elm, the only remedy that the children knew of. So innocent were they of all the wiles and maneuvers that Eros employs to gain his end, that no thought came to them that Dorkin had hid himself in the wolfskin, with any other intent than to play a merry prank upon them. And full of compassion, they led him part of his way, encouraging him with kind words. And he, who had been rescued not from the jaws of a wolf, such was the story he was likely to tell, but from the jaws of dogs, shuffled homeward, stopping from time to time to retie Chloe's dressings of his wounds. And after he had gone, Daphnis and Chloe were busy until the closing in of night gathering their scattered flocks, for the she-goats and ewes were so terrified by the wolfskin and by the loud barking of the dogs that they had run up the steeps and crags and down to the shores of the sea. They no longer heeded the voice of their shepherd, and he piped in vain to flocks that erstwhile were obedient to a mere clapping of hands. All the she-goats had learned seemed to have passed from them, and to collect them was a long labor, but all were gathered within the fold at last, and Daphnis and Chloe, going to their beds, slept soundly, and in weariness had ease from the pain of love. But with the coming of day, passion awoke in them again, the pleasure of meeting at dawn, and the sorrow of quitting at dusk. They wished for something, and knew not what they craved for. Only this did they know. One that his sickness was begotten by a kiss, the other by the sight of a bather. The sun heat inflamed them the more, for the year was now passing out of the cool of the spring into the beginning of summer, when all is in sap, when the trees begin to show their fruits, and when the corn is in ear, when the voice of the cicala is heard in the branches, when the bleeding of the ewes tells of the richness of the fields, and the perfumed air is delightful to breathe. The streams seem asleep, so silently do they flow. The winds seem like organs and flutes, so sweetly do they sigh through the branches of the pines. The apples are raped from the branches by the sun, their lover. Daphnis, overcome by the heat, threw himself into the river, Sometimes he washed himself, sometimes he splashed after the fish which escaped his clutching hand, and sometimes he stooped to drink as if with water he sought to quench the fire within him. Chloe milked the ewes, and many of Daphnis's she-goats, but for a long time she could not get the milk to curdle, so tormented was she by the flies. She drove them away, but they returned with a vicious buzz, biting her. However, the milk would at last begin to curdle, and then she washed her face, and crowned with tender branches of the pine, and girdled with the fawn skin, 
she filled a piggin with wine and milk, and they drank together. Before noon, they were more ardently in love than ever, for Chloe seeing in naked Daphnis beauty perfectly accomplished, was overcome in all her senses, and thought she would die of love. And he, seeing her girdled with the fawn skin and crowned with a crown of pine needles, holding a piggin for him to drink from, thought he saw one of the nymphs themselves come from their cave. And going to her, he took her crown, kissed it first, and then put it on his own head. And she, whilst he bathed naked, took his gown and wore it, after having kissed it first, just as he had done. Sometimes they threw apples at one another, sometimes adorned their heads and plaited each other's hair, Chloe saying that Daphnis's locks were black like myrtle, and Daphnis answering that Chloe's face was like an apple, for it was white and red. He taught her to play on the pipe, and every time she began to blow into it, he caught it from her and then ran his lips over the pipe from one end to the other, pretending that he would correct a mistake, but in truth to get a chance to kiss her by proxy, kissing the flute in the places where it had left her mouth. And one noontide, it happened that after playing his pipe gladly within hearing of the flocks resting in the shadow, Chloe dropped off to sleep whilst listening, and Daphnis, seeing this, laid aside his pipe so that he might admire and contemplate. And being without shame, he said, How her eyes sleep! How her mouth breathes! Neither flowering apple nor thorn trees breathe so sweet a breath. But I dare not kiss her. Her kiss stings to the heart and maddens like new honey. And to awake her I am afraid. O oh, noisy cicalas, she cannot sleep. So loudly do you sing. On the other side, the goats do not cease to fight, and the clashing of horns will awake her. O oh, wolves, more cowardly than foxes, where are you now? Why are you not here to put an end to their broiling? Now, whilst he was in the midst of thoughts like these, a cicala, followed by a swallow, sought refuge in Chloe's bosom, and the swallow, that could not stay her hurried flight, swept with her wing Chloe's face, who, not knowing what had happened, started from her sleep and cried aloud. But when she saw the swallow flying nearby and Daphnis laughing at her, she lost her fear, rubbing her eyes, still full of sleep. And then the cicala began to sing between her breasts, as if it would give thanks for the sudden saving of its life, again frightening Chloe, who cried aloud, Daphnis laughing at her the while. And seeing that his chance had come, he searched in her bosom, withdrawing the gentle cicala, which could not keep silent although he held it in his hand. Chloe was glad to see it, and having kissed it, replaced it, singing, within her breasts. On another time they heard a wood pigeon singing in the branches, and Chloe, taking pleasure in the murmur, asked Daphnis what the bird was saying, and Daphnis told her some of the old knowledge of the country. Once on a time, sweet maid, there was a maiden beautiful as thou art beautiful, and just of an age with thee. She loved to sing, and her cows delighted in her song. She ruled with her voice only, never striking out with her staff or thrusting with the goad, but sitting in the shadow of a pine, wearing a coronal of the same, she sang of Pan and Petus, and the cows were content to remain within hearing of her singing. Not far off was a neat herd, handsome as she, and one that sang as well, 
who setting himself to sing against her, and having more voice, being a male, and his voice being as soft as hers, for he was young, succeeded in luring away from her eight of her finest cows. The poor shepherdess, as much grieved at seeing her herd diminish as she was to hear herself outdone in singing, prayed to the gods that she might be changed into a bird before returning home. Her desire was granted, and she was changed into yonder mountain bird that loves to sing as she did when she was a girl. And her complaint is, as she flies to and fro, that she is searching for her wandering cows. Such were their summer pleasures, but when autumn was by again, and the grape was ripe, certain Tyrian pirates, voyaging about in a carrion ship, so that they might not be known to be barbarians, landed on the coasts and came up country, a well-armed band, with breastplates hung over their shoulders and swords on their thighs, pillaging all they could lay hands upon, such as fine-flavored wine, rich grain, honeycombs, and many cattle were robbed from Dorkin's herd. As they went hither and thither, they came upon Daphnis driving his goats by the sea alone, for Chloe was afraid of the rough shepherds, and more slowly led Dryas's ewes to pasture. And seeing this handsome lad, and judging him to be more saleable than anything they could rob from the fields, they wasted no more time in following she-goats and robbing shepherds of their small stores of fruits and grain and honeycombs, but dragged Daphnis into the ship, weeping and crying loudly to Chloe, loudly as he could call. They had hardly scrambled into their ship and loosed, and were laying their oars into the sea, when Chloe, seeking Daphnis, she was bringing him a new flute, came upon the scattered flock, and hearing Daphnis's voice crying to her ever more loudly, she threw the flute aside, and thought no more about the flock, but ran to Dorkin to beg him to come to the help of Daphnis. She found him on the ground, bathed in blood, for the pirates had stabbed him again and again, and from his wounds so much blood had come that he now could hardly breathe. But when he saw Chloe, some of his strength returned to him. "'Chloe, my beloved,' said he, "'I am going to die very soon. I sought to save my cattle from these wicked thieves, who have used me as thou seest. But do thou, Chloe, save Daphnis. To revenge me let the rogues perish.' I have taught my cows to follow the sound of my flute, and however far they may have gone, they will return at the sound of it. Go to the seashore with this flute, and play the tune that I taught Daphnis and that he taught thee, and what falls out shall be accounted to the flute and the cattle yonder, and the flute itself I give thee. With it I prevailed over many shepherds and neat herds. And for all this I ask but one thing, kiss me before I go. Weep for me when I am dead. And of all, when thou seest a neat herd watching his beasts feed in the fields, let him recall to thee some remembrance of me. And having spoken these words, and gotten a kiss from her on the lips, his voice ended and life passed from him. And Chloe put his flute to her mouth and blew into it loudly as she was able. And the cows heard and knew the note of the song, and lowing threw themselves into the sea. And as they all sprang from the same side, the ship leaned over, and water poured in, and the ship sank, those that were in her rising to the surface, but not all with the same hopes of reaching the shore. 
for the brigands had on their shoulders breastplates and on their thighs swords, and their boots reached halfway up their legs, whereas Daphnis was unshod, like a shepherd who leads his flock in the plain, and half-naked as the season demanded, for it was still hot. So the pirates, after having swum a little way, were sunk by their armor beneath the waves, whereas Daphnis, having released himself from all vesture, swam whilst the pirate rogues were sinking about him. But never having swum in the sea before, only in rivers, he found it hard to make headway. But his necessity prompting him, he swam between two cows, and holding on to their horns, his arms extended. He was carried by them without trouble, as easily as if he was riding in a chariot. For the kind swim longer than any man, none surpasses them in the water, unless indeed the seabirds or fish themselves. Such strong swimmers are they that we have no knowledge of any ox or cow being drowned till the sea water has melted their hooves. Wherefore many straits of the sea, even to this day, are called Bosporus, which means crossings or passages for cattle. And that is how Daphnis was saved from two great dangers, from slavery and from drowning. And coming to the shore where Chloe stood laughing and weeping, they fell into each other's arms, he asking why she had played the flute, and Chloe telling him everything, that she had run to fetch Dorkin, who told her how his cows were taught to return at the sound of his flute, and that he had told her how to play it, and that he was dead. Only through fear or shame she withheld from him that she had kissed Dorkin. A silence fell, and they sat thinking how the memory should be honored of him who had done them such kindness, and they went with parents and friends to bury the unlucky neatherd, throwing into the grave much earth, and planting about it perennial plants, trees, and flowers, hanging on the branches offerings they had gathered from the fields. And they poured milk upon the grave, and crushed great bunches of grapes, and left many broken flutes whereupon was heard the sorrowful lowing of kine, and very soon the cows came running hither and thither, and the distracted herd seemed to the shepherds like a portent, and the lowing a lament for the dead master. And the funeral of Dorkin being over and done, Chloe brought Daphnis to the cavern of the nymphs, where she washed him, and there for the first time Daphnis looking on, she washed her own white body, pure in its loveliness, and needing no cleaning to make it more lovely. And together they culled the season's flowers, made crowns for the statues of the nymphs, tied Dorkin's flute as an offering against the rock, and then suddenly bethought themselves of their she-goats and ewes, and whilst faring came upon them all lying scattered in their pasture, neither feeding nor bleeding, belike missing Daphnis and Chloe so long away. But when the twain appeared and called to them, and they heard the customary tunes on the pipes. They rose at once, the ewes to feed, and the she-goats to skip and jump whilst bleeding, as if to welcome the return of their herdsmen. But Daphnis was sullen and subdued, for he had seen Chloe naked, and discerning shapes in her beauty that he knew not of before, a sickness came upon him, and there was a gnawing as of a poison always at his heart. He often gasped for breath, as if he were pursued by an enemy, Chloe's bath was more redoubtable than the sea, and when he turned over on his pillow, it seemed to him that he had been robbed of his soul by brigands. So it was with this young boy, reared in the fields, who knew nothing of love's brigandage. 
End of section one.